Hello, welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell from the University of Saskatchewan. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Karen Orsel back to the podcast. Karen is a professor at the University of Calgary School of Veterinary Medicine, and she has many areas of expertise related to cattle health and preventive medicine. This week, we're going to chat about one of her major research areas, bovine lameness, and in particular, a condition known as digital dermatitis. Dr. Orsel is one of the leading experts on this condition, and she's going to answer all of our questions about this important cause of lameness in dairy cattle, and now also in beef cattle. Let's get started. Hi, Karen. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here again. Thank you so much, John, for having me. Well, before we get into our topic for today, I'll just maybe ask you to introduce yourself again to the listeners, just to tell us a little bit about your background and where you work and what you do. I'm happy to do that because then I can say sorry for the accent that comes through in the podcast because I'm born and raised and trained in the Netherlands, Um, did my DVM degree in Utrecht and worked for the first 10 years of my career over there. I moved to Calgary in 2008 to join the new vet school that is in Calgary now, and I'm teaching bovine health. So so anything cow and herd related is uh, sort of part of my passion. And I am licensed in North America, so I can practice uh, in North America as well. So I do see some cows every now and then besides my training, uh, the new generation of veterinarians. That's great. And it's wonderful that you have both that practical hands-on experience as well as the research side. And today we're going to talk about one of the things that you're kind of a guru of, (laughs) cattle lameness. And we'd like to talk specifically about digital dermatitis, which is a really important cause of lameness in dairy cows, but we're starting to see it as a cause of lameness in both feedlot cattle and cow-calf herds. People may have heard of this cause of lameness from their veterinarian by a different name. (laughs) What are some of the other names that this particular uh, disease goes by? Yeah, it's interesting that there is so many names out there for this disease. I don't know if digital dermatitis is just too complicated. I'll tend to call it DD. That just keeps it simple. But the presentation of the lesion is really as an ulcerative red lesion. So that's where the name strawberry heel warts or strawberry foot rot comes from. Uh, because it has that reddish uh, appearance. I think those are the most common diseases. But if you talk to someone from Europe, like myself, we refer to the disease as Mortelaro's disease, because uh, it was actually Mr. Mortelaro who identified the disease, but only in the 70s. It's really something that is relatively new and in the early 70s described by Mortelaro. So Mortelaro's disease is what Europeans will tell you, but let's go with DD for today. And hairy heel warts is another name. Why the hairy part of that? Yeah, that's a good point. I mentioned the strawberry and the red, but if the lesion gets a little bit more chronic, we see extensions to the lesions and lots of really long hairs growing off that lesion. And that gave them also the nickname hairy heel warts. So it's not really a wart, but it's that proliferation. It's that response of the skin to go really out of control. And it, it makes it look like a wart with really long hairs on it. Yeah. So hairy heel wart is another one. Let's start by talking about how important digital dermatitis is as a cause of lameness in dairy herds. You have a lot of experience both in the Netherlands and Canada and doing some dairy research as well. How important is this disease in that side of the agricultural industry? 
Yeah, when I, I did my research in Europe, I moved to Canada and I was uh, curious, like had the same question, like how important is that disease in the dairy industry? And we actually enrolled over 140 dairy farms across Canada, including 80 farms in Alberta. And there was seriously only one farm that did not have digital dermatitis, so DD. So 98% was positive. I'm pretty much telling you that everyone has the disease. And unfortunately, when you have the disease, you very likely have multiple cows. So we call that the within herd prevalence. So within the herd, there is easily up to 20% of the cows affected by DD. That doesn't mean they're all lame, but it means they all have a lesion. And some lesions are painful and they cause lameness. Some lesions are not. But 20% within a herd, that's a huge number. So anywhere where animals are housed in confinement, we can see it. So Europe and North America, we knew it was there. For the longest time, New Zealand was pretty proud that they did not have DD. As most people might know, their dairy industry is mainly pasture-based, but that is no longer the case. They have DD as well, same percentages as we deal with in a confined environment. So unfortunately, the fact that you know our beef cattle are on pasture doesn't protect them from the disease. It's a smart, smart bug that caused this disease, and it's it's here to stay. Well, it's an infectious disease that seems to be everywhere in the dairy industry, it would seem. What do we know about how commonly we see it in feedlot cattle or cow-calf herds? Yeah, it's interesting because it was perceived as a, as a dairy disease for the longest time. But you actually uh, published on that in 14, where we, we got quite a few reports in feedlots. And I think at the beginning, the industry was more like, ah, those are those Holstein steers that were finishing in the feedlots. We, so we kept blaming the black and whites. I think that is the past. I think the reality now is that after BRD, lameness is our second most important economic reason of disease in feedlots. And it's also the second most common reason for pulling animals from a pen. And of that, not everyone has foot rot or joint problems, but quite a few animals have digital dermatitis. So they have DD. So I think our feedlots have clued in that it's there and a lot of feedlots report it. Interestingly enough, in Alberta, I've kind of seen it creep north. It was very common in the south and then, you know, it's slowly moving up. I think most feedlots now have seen the disease. Um, and if people know that, I call it my pet disease, that's probably a bad thing. But yeah, it's such an intriguing disease. So people know that I'm passionate about the disease. They start calling me. And unfortunately, I get very regular calls now, too, of animals on pasture, beef cows, bulls that are affected with DD as well. So I don't have really good numbers for you because we haven't done the research. Would love to do that. But I can tell you it's very common in feedlots and it is quite extensively present in the pasture-based animals as well, both the cows as well as the bulls. I think you mentioned in one of your notes that there was an abattoir report from the early 2000s in the U.S. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, because when I thought about, you know, how important is this disease, you know, as an academic, you always try to look for scientific evidence. And so that one piece of evidence did look at animals that were in the abattoir. And of those, in 2004% had DD. 
So that is a, a decent number because we expect those to be healthy animals that arrive at the abattoir. So 4% affected. Another study that might be worth mentioning is a study led by Karen Swarskop-Genswein. And we collaborated together in Alberta on this study. And she followed animals that were pulled for lameness in two larger feedlots for two consecutive years. So really for a long time. And DD was definitely a, a very important cause of lameness. We had 10 years worth of data in that same study that we could explore. So now we're talking 2005 till 2015. So we had 28 feedlots that gave us 10 years worth of data. So it was retrospective. So I could not tell people like, okay, this is DD. Can you tell me if this is what you saw? But they did have a lot of lameness. And 70 of, or, or a really high percentage of those animals were foot rot. But the interesting thing was when we started really digging into the numbers is that a lot of foot rot cases were treated over and over and over again and didn't respond to treatment. That's not foot rot. Foot rot is responding to treatment. So we think that a lot of those cases were actually misdiagnosed and probably RDD because they don't respond to the same treatment as foot rot does. So I think it's out here for longer. I think it's out here in a higher percentage than people might have initially thought about. And I think now with, you know, veterinarians taking their job serious and training crews on recognizing the disease, we hear more and more that it's out there. Well, let's talk about what actually causes digital dermatitis. What's behind this infection? I know it's, it sounds like the easiest question on the planet, but I think we can do a whole podcast just talking about what causes DD because we cannot agree on it. There is a lot of bacteria that are involved and it's not just one bacterium. It's, you cannot blame one bacteria for causing this. But what we do know is that all animals that have DD have treponemes and treponemes are a spirochete. So they're like leptospira and, and other wiggly uh, active bacteria and always found in DD lesions. The interesting thing is, is that there is quite a few different treponemes and we don't really understand which treponeme is more important than the other. In one lesion, you see treponema medium. In the other one, you see phagedanus. So they have different last names. We don't know what their role is, but we know they are there. Besides the treponemes, we find a lot of other what we call anaerobic bacteria. And those are bacteria that grow very happily in the lab if there is no oxygen. So they really prefer to live in an environment without oxygen. And maybe that is an interesting thing to think about when you think about this disease, because that bacterium is happy in the skin. It sort of hides there. And as long as there is mud cover and other stuff, they're happy and they grow. And we just know that it's not just the treponemes, but also fusobacterium, actually porphyromonas, bacteroides, even certain types of mycoplasma are cultured from DD lesions. So we call it now polymicrobial. It's a bacterium. We know that much. But which one? Ah, we, we blame a few. And do we grow the same bugs from digital dermatitis lesions in dairy cattle and beef cattle? Yeah, pretty much. You know, we, we have very good techniques nowadays. And I always refer to that as sort of fingerprinting. 
So you're really trying to get to all the nitty gritty details of the bacteria. And we uh, did a study here led by Jeroen de Bak here in, at the UCVM. And his grad student, Ben Caddy, looked at what bacteria do we culture from dairy? What do we culture from beef? They're very comparable. So it was good news for us veterinarians because it meant that everything that we already know from dealing with DD and dairy very likely is also applicable to beef. So we don't start from scratch. We can, we can work with what we know from dairy. So this is an infectious disease, even though it's multiple bacteria involved. How would it get into a herd and how is it transmitted from animal to animal? Yeah, I think a lot of people always ask me, like, can we blame the wildlife or can we blame something? The only thing we can blame is ourselves, because most likely it comes in with animals. And whether that is the bulls that are brought in in a cow-calf herd, a feedlot that is animals being brought in without any exception. And we tend to bring them in without really looking at lameness. They're lame. We think they might just have been injured or bruised during transportation. And we don't pay attention to their feet. And so animals bring in digital dermatitis. And once that that infected animal is in the environment, you can actually find the most common bacteria of the lesions also in the environment. So in the slurry, in wet areas, in the pen, that's where the bacteria are and that's where they stay. So if another animal enters a contaminated environment, it will pick up the disease again. But it's most likely introduced with cows and transmitted from cow to cows. But you're telling me I can't blame the Holsteins. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah, I have no evidence to do that. We do know there is breed differences, and that is probably interesting and maybe why our thoughts were first in that area. But we, I've also worked with feedlots and I asked them, which pens are most likely to break or which group of cattle do you think will break with DD? And sometimes it's not predictable. They could not predict which group would be and others that, you know, within a lot, there was one pen that, that came down with DD and the other lot didn't. So no, I'm not with you. I'm, I'm not blaming the whole scenes. I'm also not blaming the wildlife. They can also have DD, which is interesting, but no, we're not blaming them. They blame us for, uh, for getting the, this in the environment. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know there was wildlife with DD. That's that's very interesting. So you've looked at this in a bunch of places. Are there any risk factors that we can look at that might explain why specific pens or specific groups of animals are affected with digital dermatitis? Yeah, I think there is a lot of details known about risk factors in dairy, but what it all comes down to is hygiene and hygiene in any form or shape. I think it's easy for people to visualize that a dairy cow walking on concrete walks through slurry the whole day, but it can pretty much be the same for our beef cattle, especially in the feedlots. We, we are now in April when we're recording. We, we're luckily finally thawing out. It also means that the pen conditions are not perfect in every feedlot. So if those animals are in muddy pens, and, and that's one of our studies showed that too, if the pens are wet, and animals walk through muddy and and wet conditions, that is probably affecting the skin in such a way that the bacteria can easily enter the skin and cause this infection. So hygiene in any form or shape. And then I know that you're gonna ask me like, how the hell is that gonna work for, uh, for pasture? But if we get the rains that they promise us, a pasture environment can also be wet, 
but especially around waterers or dugouts or sloughs where all the animals walk to the same path, that's where there are muddy conditions. So the feet will be wet for a longer time because that's where the animals hang out. And it's enough to break the skin or at least make the skin so susceptible that the bacteria just can work their way into the skin and cause that lesion. So that would be very similar to some of the risk factors for foot rot and some of those other causes of lameness. Is there any evidence that if you're buying more animals than other people, that you're more likely to get digital dermatitis? In our study, we could not show that, but that can also be because we did the study only in five feet lots, so we could not really uh, find that relationship. I think it's very possible because an intact skin can fight off bacteria. So if the skin is healthy, bacteria should not be able to get in there. But if you bring in animals from different environments, you know, there might be more animal movements. There might be just animals that are not just quietly walking around, but maybe running up and down an alleyway or twisting and turning a little bit more. And people think that the traction on the skin can actually cause some micro abrasions and anything that can damage that skin whether that is the excitement of pens being filled or anything that's happening, uh, mixing and mingling of groups of different origins. Yeah, we think it plays a role. Do I know it? No, I don't know it, but I do think it is. So if we had a lame cow with digital dermatitis in our herd, how would the producer differentiate it from foot rot or some of the other causes of lameness, I think? Many times we think every lame cow has foot rot, but that's not always the case. How do you identify digital dermatitis? Ideally, my answer would be is you pick up the foot and you look. <laughs> and I know that that is really challenging. I don't think it's overly challenging for feedlots. And the people that I work with now actually have made it their habit is when they run an animal through for treating it, they, they make an effort to lift the foot and look. Because it looks like that strawberry, it, it's an ulcerative lesion, it's an open skin wound, and it's, it looks different than your, your foot rot typically looks. The other thing that you can think about is, is really a typical stance. So when you look at the animal, because the lesion is commonly at the ball of the foot, the animal tries to get the weight of the hind side of the foot and really place the, the weight on the toe. So it, the stance becomes very typical on the toes, and they try to get that weight off. Once you start looking for those sort of more subtle signs, you can actually see it. But I wish I could convince everyone to lift a foot and make sure that you diagnose correctly. Because if you treat an animal with DD like a foot rot, it will not work. Well, and maybe that's another diagnostic tool in some ways, <laughs> uh, if it doesn't get better probably should be looking at that animal more closely. And I had Dr. Clark on a few episodes ago talking about foot rot, and that was one of his major statements as well. What are the welfare and production consequences of this kind of lameness? Yeah, I think for the longest time, we might have underestimated the impact that lameness in general, but also DD has. And if we're talking welfare, it's really when, when, when lameness is painful, it's a welfare concern. The animals in the feedlots affected very often are towards the end of the feeding period. So that also has a concern of, do you still transport those animals or are they too lame and not fit for transport? 
So I think that welfare concern definitely is there. In a study led by Ed Pager and his grad student, Anise Thomas, we actually measured pain. So we had a, an, a, a little device that put pressure on the lesion. And we could say that those acute lesions are so painful, the animals tried to kick the light out of your eyes. So it is a painful lesion, it causes lameness, and it's definitely a welfare issue. Because it's painful, it has an impact on gain. And we, we could also show in our studies that we had a reduced average daily gain. Was it massive? Mm, well, maybe not. But, you know, if it was like a 0.25, uh, 0.4 pounds a day. It adds up because it's a lesion that if it goes untreated, it's there for a longer time. And then it definitely does add up. So, yes, it comes with a cost for lameness. It comes with a cost for gain. And uh, it should be something that we pay attention to. Let's talk about treatment. So if a producer identified animal or animals with this lesion on their heel, how would they treat those animals? Yeah, so the reason that I, I already mentioned, and I'm going to take this opportunity to say it again, is that people have to lift a foot. It's very easy. Just rope the foot, throw the rope over the, the chute and pull it up because the, the best treatment is a topical treatment. Ideally, you would clean the foot a little bit, but at least treat the lesion topical. There's all kinds of products available. A lot of products are containing copper or other minerals like zinc or copper sulfate, and those products are disinfecting. And that seems to be enough. Injections with antibiotics, they just don't work. Your foot rot bacteria seems to be most happy under the skin and therefore probably a little bit easier accessible with your antibiotics. This lesion sits in the skin. And if you inject a cow with antibiotics, the antibiotics don't get in the skin. You have to put it on the lesion to treat. And I know it's it's a pain. And I know if a cow is on pasture, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's the only thing that works. It's topical treatment of the individual animal. Now, in a dairy herd, they can apply that topical treatment every time the cow comes through the milking parlor. Do we have to do that the same in beef cattle in terms of treating them every day? Or can we do something else to give a more long-term treatment? Ideally, you, you would do that. And there is sprays that people use in parlors. And I've seen people in feedlots using that now too with a sort of an extended nozzle so you don't have to lift a foot. So if you work in a chute where you have good access, that is possible to do. Another dairy approach is to put a wrap on it and, and then treat it topically and keep the wrap on there. Your challenge is, is that wrap needs to come off. So after preferably three, maximum five days, we should take that uh, fat wrap off. So it, it still means that you have to run the animal through more than once. And that is a little bit of a pain. I totally recognize that. But it is the best thing to do because your other alternative would be to think about treating the whole group of animals. And that's what people in dairies do to also prevent but also control is to use food baths. And foot baths, again, don't contain antibiotics. They, don't, they do contain products that are disinfecting. And I think copper sulfate, again, is your most common one. But there's lots of other products, and I won't name names because I don't have one favorite. But there is some good ones out there, all based on disinfecting the skin. It takes a little bit of time to figure out on how to do that correctly. Because in the ideal world, 
you would place a footpath in a way that cows walk through it quietly. So don't jump through it, but walk through it. Cannot jump over or to the side and have at least twice emerging all their four feet. So it needs to have a decent length. So ideally up to three meters. That's a big footpath, but that is what works best. And then to make it even more complicated, ideally the animals should step in there with clean feet. Because you can imagine if the foot is covered with mud or anything that's caked on that foot, the disinfectant product will not get on that lesion. So it takes a little bit of time. I've seen people, you know, having animals walk through water before they walk through the disinfecting solution. It's a really good way to think about it. But you really have to think about where do I place a foot bath? Very often in feedlots in something that can be moved around in an alleyway that I can safely walk my animals through the foot bath so that everyone has contact with a disinfected fluid when the animals walk through. So a little bit of a puzzle, but it is worth it if you have multiple animals and lifting all the feet are, are just not feasible. Yes, if you have an outbreak, it might be the only only logistical thing that you could do that would be somewhat practical. However, there are huge challenges to foot baths, even in dairy situations. But now in a cow-calf or feedlot situation, what are some of the other challenges that we have to deal with if we wanted to use foot baths as an option? Yeah, I think there's two challenges we should keep in mind. One is our temperature, <laughs> because a lot of the disinfecting products don't work when it's really cold. So in the dairy, when you're in the barn, cows produce enough heat to, you know, even in winters, keep the temperature at good effective temperature. So four to eight degrees is sort of the cutoff that we say under 10 degrees, it becomes something that's worth looking into. But there's warm water there, there is a, a, a controlled environment. In feedlots, that's not the case. So having animals walk through a foot bath at minus 20 just doesn't make sense. The product won't work and actually making the feed wet might actually cause some challenges with the cold. So I think in winter, it needs even more of our engineering brain to think about how to do it well. And then we, we're talking winter, but now the opposite is our summer. So now thinking about our bulls and our cows on pasture, they're often far away from any shoot system. So how do I control or get access to that one animal if I'm just checking cows on horseback? When I was thinking about it and talking to someone the other day, I was like, you know, that's where you need your cowboy skills. So if an animal has a size that and it, you, you can rope it down, it is a very good approach, but please stay safe because you're dealing with hind feet most of the time. So it can be a risky environment. So thinking about opportunities to close animals in and handle them safely on pasture is, I think, as much a challenge as our winters are. It is a hugely challenging disease, even in the feedlot to deal with. And, and you've outlined a lot of those logistical challenges there. It'd be wonderful if we had a vaccine for this disease. Is there any potential for that to come down the road? I'm so tempted to give you my Dutch approach, which is no, <laughs> but that might be just too too blunt. So I'll, I'll try to uh, nuance that a little bit because, of course, we would love to have a vaccine to help us control an infectious disease, but we don't know which bacterium to blame. 
we know that there is at least four different treponemes. We know that there's at least three or four more anaerobic bacteria. So I make a vaccine against all of them and try to combine it. It's not like it is with COVID that we have one strain and then the strain is adapting and changing a little bit and we're adjusting our vaccines. It's seven different bacteria. It's it, They're not that related that if one bacterium is in the vaccine, that it will also protect against the other one. So I know that there is research groups working on this. I know that some research groups have promised us a vaccine for more than 10 years. I don't think there will be a vaccine anytime soon. So I think we really have to opt our game when it comes to biosecurity, when it comes to quarantining new animals, when it comes to controlling and preventing the disease and, and managing hygiene in the best way we can. Well, that leads us into maybe our final question. How are we going to minimize the chances of bringing digital dermatitis into our cow-calf herds? We certainly have talked extensively about the challenges of treating it and dealing with it if we get it there. So it would be far better to keep it out. What do we need to think about? Yeah, I think if there is no evidence that it's in your herd, I would put a lot of time and effort in keeping it out. And keeping it out is really thinking about the animals you bring in. Maybe it's worse if you bring in new animals to, can you food bait them? Can you walk them through the chute if you vaccinate them on arrival? Can you also have a look at the feet and make sure that when you add them to your own herd, that all those animals are healthy? So really have a more closer look at the feet uh, or quarantine the animals before you merge them with your own animals, I think is definitely worth your time and energy. And then the bulls is the other thing. The lesions can be there with show, without showing lameness. And especially if the boys are a little bit excited, you might just not see the lameness so much. But if they have DD, they have that different stance, but also the, the, the hoofs get a little bit more blocky. In the end, the hoof shape changes. Have a very close look at the feet and see if you think it might be there. If so, it might be even worth considering having a hoof trimmer come out. There is some really good hoof trimmers in, uh, for sure in Alberta. John, you might have to help me here with the Saskatchewan, but there's people that are specialized in, in beef trimming. They have sh trimming chutes that can safely handle animals. And if you can avoid the disease from getting in or treat an animal very carefully, I think it's worth the money because it's an investment in the future. Because once it's in your herd, like we've seen with dairy, it might just not go away. What about intervention? If you do happen to see a case, can you prevent it from spreading by intervening quickly? I think if you get a very good treatment, animals can fully recover, but you have to make sure that they are fully recovering because we also know from the dairy again is that some animals have a recurrent lesion. So they're very red, they're acute, they're painful, they become chronic, and then they flare up again. So that flaring up of chronic lesions can be another cause of the disease spreading again. So if you treat an animal with DD, don't add it to the herd until it's fully healed. And don't assume it will go back to fully healing because the chronic lesions and the flare up to active lesions is definitely a challenge. So it needs a little bit of time and energy and commitment to make sure that our animals are on healthy feet. Where can producers go to get more information about digital dermatitis? I'm thinking maybe 
especially some images so that they can look at what those lesions look like and identify them easier, Karen? Yeah, I think uh, BCRC does a really good job with having resources on their website. Another really good resource, especially for digital dermatitis, also for beef, is the Synpro website. They have very good lesion images on there. They, they show you the contrasting differences. But I would encourage every producer also to reach out to their veterinarian. If you haven't seen it, they can help you identify and they should be a resource of, of knowledge there as well. So, so websites available and people can call me. I have an endless collection of photos and, uh, and situations of animals with DD, including elk in North America that are also affected. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. This has been great information about a emerging disease, I think, in the cow-calf and feedlot industry. So really appreciate you being here and helping explain it to us so clearly. Thank you. Thank you, John. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Karen Orsel. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. We always appreciate your feedback. So if you have questions or comments, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.